Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the convictions today of four prominent Proud Boys and their chairman, all of whom were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, with the fifth, who was the first to break into the Capitol on January the 6th, already found guilty of robbery and assaulting a police officer. Joining us is Andy Campbell, an investigative reporter and editor covering extremism, misinformation and their intersection with national politics. He's currently based in New York, where he works on the breaking news desk at the Huffington Post, and he's considered an expert on American extremism, having covered the modern rise of the far right at the ground level, including the neo-Nazi rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. He is the author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism, and we will discuss his latest article at the Huffington Post, Proud Boys Leaders Found Guilty of January the 6th Sedition Conspiracy. Then we'll examine the possibility that the drone attack on the Kremlin was carried out by Russian partisans opposed to the Putin regime, and that in order to deflect the humiliation of a strike on Putin's residence inside the Kremlin, Putin's propaganda machine is working overtime to blame it on the Americans. Joining us to assess who is behind what is unlikely to be a staged event is Lucas Weber, a researcher focused on geopolitics, great power politics, and transnational militant movements. He is the co-founder and editor of Militant Wire and contributes to Eurasianet, Jamestown Foundation, and The Diplomat. We will discuss his article at Unheard, Kremlin Drone Attack Shows Russian Vulnerability. Then finally, we'll look into why the U.S. has been slow in helping Ukraine defend itself with the weapons that are eventually delivered months if not a year late, as the Biden administration creates its own red lines, then belatedly undoes them for tanks, etc., while creating new red lines for aircraft and longer-range missiles. Joining us is Dov Sackheim, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and vice chairman of the board for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2001 to April of 2004, he was Under Secretary of Defense and Chief Financial Officer for the Department of Defense. His latest article at the Hill is How a Successful Ukrainian Spring Counteroffensive Could Lead to Putin's Downfall and Yevgeny Prigozhin's Elevation to President. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Andy Campbell, an investigative reporter and editor covering extremism, misinformation, and their intersection with national politics. He's currently based in New York, where he works on the breaking news desk at the Huffington Post, and he's considered an expert on American extremism, having covered the modern rise of the far right on, at the ground level, including the neo-Nazi rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. And he's the author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. And his latest article at the Huffington Post is Proud Boy Leaders Found Guilty of January the 6th Seditious Conspiracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andy Campbell. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, this considerable victory for the government in a difficult trial uh, because seditious conspiracy is not easy to prove. And it's a trial lasted four months, but it looks as though, given the verdicts against the Proud Boys chairman, uh, Enrico Tarrio, Ethan Nordine, Joseph Biggs and Zachary Rail were guilty of seditious conspiracy. And then, of course, Dominic Pozzola 
I guess that's pending on him, uh, but he's already been charged, has he not, or found guilty of of using a, a riot shield stolen from an officer. So he's been found guilty of robbery and assaulting an officer. So what's your impression of today's verdict? Yeah, you know, it was a complex case. Um, each defendant has their own team of lawyers, and so it's been a trial marked by fits and starts. But you're right to say that this is a huge victory for the government. And this is one of two of its highest profile cases charging that the Proud Boys gang uh, was responsible, not only mostly for the execution of January 6th insurrection, um, but of the planning. Um, The seditious conspiracy charge holds that not only did they conspire to uh, attempt to overturn the election, uh, but that they agreed to do so beforehand. Um, and, and this is a charge that historically is not prosecuted successfully very often. The last time prior to January 6th was in the 90s against Islamic militants who were plotting to blow up the UN. So this is the government saying that we are very serious about um, the Proud Boys' involvement in January 6th. And now four out of five of their leaders are going to be spending a maximum of 20 years in prison just for that charge alone. And and they're still, the jury is still out on several uh, more charges, uh, but all of them have been found guilty as well of conspiracy to obstruct Congress. And uh, like you said, with Dominic Pozzola also stealing a, a riot shield from a police officer, using it to be the first to breach the Capitol through a window. Well, they did try, the Proud Boys and their lawyers did try to say that they didn't have a plan. But it, isn't it obvious, though, Andy, that they were a part of a plan? Because they were the stormtroopers, they were the tip of the spear that went ahead of the people that Trump and others motivated at the rally on the ellipse. They were already there testing their perimeter and then breaking in. And as you just pointed out, Pozzola was the first to actually physically break through the into the capital itself. So weren't they weren't they the the recon the the tip of the spear? Yeah, and you know the the Proud Boys' entire goal is to fight the GOP's culture wars out in the street. January sixth just happened to be a step on their violent march through the country. And you know, in, in my book, I, I iterate that right after Joe Biden was elected, the Proud Boys, these five defendants in particular. Uh, were calling for civil war. They were calling for revolution. They saw January 6th as their final stand uh, for their president. The, the, the sort of hinging point of this trial that made it an uphill battle for prosecutors was that there was no real smoking gun prior to January 6th where the Proud Boys are saying directly, we are going to storm the Capitol. Um, Enrique Tarrio did receive a, uh, a a dossier prior to January 6th called 1776 Returns, a plan to occupy several buildings on January 6th. But there was no real smoking gun. But prosecutors did convince the jury today that that, that agreement, that plan, that conspiracy could come at any time, including on the day right after Trump said, fight like hell at the ellipse, the Proud Boys leading the march uh, toward the Capitol from there. And so they did convince the jury that that was indeed the case, that that agreement came together on the day. Um, but certainly, to your point, the Proud Boys were amassing, uh, uh, they were amassing equipment, um, allies, and funding for January 6th uh, leading up to it. This was absolutely a plan to do something big on January 6th, um, uh, they knew something was coming, but there was no smoking gun there um, in terms of storming the Capitol. But in studying and interviewing these people, Andy, I've often been struck by how these militia guys in their full camo and their Kevlar carrying their uh, assault rifles strutting around. There's an, there's an element of absurdity and embarrassing kind of cowardness, really. I mean, it, in fact... One of the people that endorsed your book, Vegas Tenold, the author of Everything You Love Will Burn, Inside the Rebirth of White Nationalism in America. I'll just read his blurb for your book. 
We Are Proud Boys, how the right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. He writes, This brilliant and hilarious book explains how the country lost its mind and grown men put on designer uniforms to fight imaginary enemies in the name of whatever their adult brains believe that freedom is. If you've ever wondered how a potent mix of creeping fascism, male insecurity and grift came close to upending American democracy, then read Andy Campbell's book right now. So that's, I couldn't agree with that more. And and frankly, I don't understand why we can't sort of ridicule these couch commandos. Hey, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I absolutely um, agree uh, that these guys have a ridiculous element and and sometimes they use that to their benefit. I mean, they've argued time and time again when they've been arrested for other crimes um, that they're just, you know, a group of guys that likes to get together and gets a little too drunk and rowdy sometimes. They have uh, they have ridiculous rules um, that they follow to join the gang, which include foregoing masturbation uh, in, 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 until or unless they're within several feet of a woman um, and, and also fighting each other until one of them can name five brex- breakfast cereals. These are all rules that sort of obfuscate and, and add an air of irony to everything. But un- on top of all of those rules is the fourth degree, their highest rank, which requires that they commit a significant act of violence for right-wing causes. And that is what every proud boy at the end of the day uh, moves toward. Now, because they're so ridiculous, it would be very, very easy in my mind for the GOP looking down in the street and seeing these fascist foot soldiers, ridiculous in nature, in the street for them and rebuff them. But almost nobody on the right wing who these proud boys are fighting for has rebuffed them or called them out of the streets. And and we absolutely need to see that or that this is going to continue because one of the big takeaways from January 6 prosecutions in this trial is that the leaders being in jail has had zero chilling effect on the proud boys mobilizations and on our extremist crisis at large. The proud boys have been mobilizing week after week uh, since January 6, and they haven't slowed down at all. In fact, um, you know, they've been at drag queen story hours, abortion clinics, uh, public libraries, um, children's hospitals where they're, you know, discussing trans issues. These guys are out there with makeshift weaponry and body armor alongside neo-Nazis. And so, you know, despite the ridiculous nature, despite all these prosecutions, um, we really need to see uh, a, a culture shift um, before we're going to have an answer to what we're seeing in the street today. And of course, Donald Trump famously said to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. But the leader is an interesting character, uh, Gavin McGinnis. He's, he's actually a co-founder of Vice News, which as we speak, apparently is teetering on bankruptcy. And I'm kind of fascinated by the journey that he took. As it happens, my daughter's very close friends with Gavin McGinnis's oldest childhood friend, who is the famous American comedian. He, but he's had to. He's obviously broken with McGinnis, and I haven't asked her about what. <laughs> but I'm asking you, since you've written the book, what happened to this guy? Right. Well. Gavin McGinnis was, uh, to your point, um, he was big in the early aughts in American comedy circles. He was friends with comedians like David Cross and Sarah Silverman. If you're in the New York or L.A. comedy scene, you probably know somebody who hung out with Gavin McGinnis in the early aughts when he was with Vice. He left Vice in 2008. Um, But when he left Vice, he was sort of kicked out because his rhetoric Um, He was the editorial voice of Vice at the time and was publishing things like guides to date rape in the pages of Vice. As Vice was becoming more popular, um, you know, they were beholden to advertisers and and sort of pushed Gavin McGinnis out because his, his rhetoric was often bigoted and violent towards women. He decided instead of, you know, the rest of the comedy scene where they decided, okay, we're going to maybe push aside this bigoted rhetoric that we've been latching onto, 
Gavin McGinnis decided to double down and took his audience of violent and angry men to his own show where he got even worse. And he literally built the Proud Boys out of his fandom on his show, The Gavin McGinnis Show, which had 405 episodes. I mean, all of these episodes are still online. You can see him building them out in real time, pelting them with bigoted and often white supremacist ideology and telling them, you guys need to do what old crusty Republicans can't do and get out there and fight uh, for what you believe in. And what you believe in, by the way, is, is Trump's ideology, that everyone who opposes the right wing is Antifa, is uh, extremist. You need to attack them in the streets. So Gavin McGinnis did have a shift. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of shows how lucrative and how powerful uh, reactionary right wing radio is. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if uh, Rush Limbaugh or uh, even Joe Rogan turned to his audience, looked into the camera and said, get out there and fight for the things that I personally am mad about? Uh, it would be terrifying. And, and that's exactly what happened to Gavin McGinnis. Um, but uh, Gavin McGinnis is still very much um, atop the organization. He raises funds for them, uh, tells them what to and what not to do. Um, he he has uh, total control over the the uh, general movements of the Proud Boys right now. And I'm my biggest surprise about McGinnis is that he's never faced consequences for what he has wrought on America. But he's also been cheered on by prominent Fox personalities like Tucker Carlson. Absolutely. And, and uh, so have the Proud Boys. Um, the Proud Boys benefit because they have positioned themselves as the fighting force for the GOP. Um, they, have, they benefit from politicians, law enforcement, and media personalities who believe them and support them uh, in saying that what we're doing is a First Amendment right. We're out here defending GOP uh, rights and ideologies. And so they've created this atmosphere in politics where it's not uncommon to see guys in makeshift body armor and weaponry out in the streets. And it's something that we're seeing not just at MAGA rallies, but at American civic events. And so the, the, the Proud Boys absolutely do benefit um, from that the entire gamut of, of right-wing media, law enforcement, and politics to the point where, like I said, there needs to be a complete culture shift if we're going to stop this, not just prosecutions. It's going to take, um, you know, the right wing calling their soldiers out of the street. So one of the things that didn't come up in the trial was that the connection between the Proud Boys and Trump's right-hand uh, opposition <laughs> research guy, opposition research being a euphemism, of course, uh, Roger Stone, I think the special counsel, Jack Smith's looking into him. But why do you think Roger Stone wasn't brought up? Because Roger Stone has used the Proud Boys as bodyguards, hasn't he? Oh, much more than that. In fact, Roger Stone, like you said, Trump's confidant, admitted to me in an interview for my book that uh, he had been advising the Proud Boys politically um, through several of their members running through off for office. He'd been friends to Enrique Tarrio, um, and he had been, you know, sort of advising them on how to get a, get away with some of the crimes they committed. This guy is very close to them. And in fact, on January 6th, was in a text message chat with Enrique Tarrio. And so I am a little surprised that, that prosecutors didn't take the opportunity to substantially investigate their relationship to Roger Stone and perhaps get closer to what Donald Trump knew and how close these extremist forces got uh, to Donald Trump. But Judge Tim Kelly, who was overseeing the case, um, told prosecutors that they had to stick to these defendants and these defendants only. And so he was very adamant about that. And, and, and you can see why they may not have grabbed that opportunity. Uh, but that that is a huge question left on the table. And I'm not sure um, we're going to come to an easy answer on that. It really depends on uh, whether, you know, other uh, special counsels or or uh, prosecutors want to go after Roger Stone for his connection to these 
these criminals. Um, but we will see. I mean, it's it's not up to me at this point. We've we've laid all the facts bare and, and nobody's taken a full investigation yet. So just in closing, then, Andy Campbell, this is not over for the Proud Boys, right? They're facing a $22 million suit for vandalizing a number of historic black churches in Washington, D.C. in the months leading up to January the 6th? Yes, absolutely. They're facing pressure from there. And lawyers um, in that lawsuit told me that they hope for a, a successful verdict, not just because they want to bankrupt the Proud Boys, um, but because it would give them an opportunity to look in their books. Long have we wondered how the Proud Boys are able to amass hundreds of thousands of dollars um, after each of their crimes uh, in, in funding accounts to get Proud Boys and equipment across the country very quickly. Um, and, and hopefully this lawsuit will give us a little bit of illumination there. Um, certainly the Proud Boys are not done uh, with the court system. And I'm interested to see the reaction now that we have guilty verdicts on the seditious conspiracy, how local jurisdictions will uh, react to the Proud Boys coming to town. It, it may change a little bit. I'm, I'm certainly hoping it does for their victims. Uh, but but there's a lot left on the table here. Well, Andy Campbell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Andy Campbell, who's an investigative reporter and editor covering extremism, misinformation, and their intersection with national politics. He's currently based in New York, where he works on the breaking news desk at the Huffington Post, and he's considered an expert on American extremism, having covered the modern rise of the far right at the ground level, including the neo-Nazi rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. And he's the author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. And his latest article at the Huffington Post is Proud Boys Leaders Found Guilty of January the 6th Seditious Conspiracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the possibility that the drone attack on the Kremlin was carried out by Russian partisans opposed to the Putin regime. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lucas Weber, a researcher focused on geopolitics, great power politics, and transnational militant movements. He is the co-founder and editor of Militant Wire and contributes to Eurasianet, Jamestown Foundation, and The Diplomat. And he has an article at Unheard, Kremlin Drone Attack Shows Russian Vulnerability. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lucas Weber. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Lucas. And it seems to me that the Kremlin's propaganda offensive following this drone attack, particularly with Peskov, Putin's spokesman, claiming that the Americans are behind it and playing this up to the Russian public, it doesn't sound to me like it was a staged attack designed for a propaganda offensive, but rather an attack that caught the Russians by surprise, and they're turning it into a propaganda offensive. Where do you come down on this? Yes, well, uh, there is quite a lot of talk going around about uh, this being some kind of false flag uh, operation. However, uh, I think if we look at it in context, uh, Ukraine has been launching a... um, There has been a a surge in recent uh, days and weeks in Ukrainian cross-border sabotage operations, um, drone attacks uh, into Russian-occupied territory and across Russia's actual borders. And in the last four days, there's been a a number of drone attacks and uh, actually two bombings that on consecutive days that derailed uh, two different trains. And we have also seen uh, Ukraine, for instance, support groups like uh, like Russia, Russian nationals, uh, far-right nationals that are fighting on the Ukrainian side, make cross-border incursions into Bryansk region. 
And um, we've seen drone attacks against Engels Air Base deep inside of Russia. So this uh, this seems like one that has slipped through and is uh, more so humiliating for uh, the Kremlin and uh, shows that there are gaps or deficiencies in their anti-air defense, even in their capital city. So I believe that uh, the Ukrainians are the most likely perpetrator behind the attack or could perhaps be pro-Ukraine partisans or something of this nature. Well, President Zelensky visiting Finland went out of his way to deny that they had anything to do with it, saying that, that they don't go after Putin and that they will fight the Russians in their towns and villages and they need more weapons to do so. So if it's Badanov, the head of the military intelligence, uh, he seems to have a certain amount of latitude. That sort of makes sense, but it does seem like the quick denial on the part of the Ukrainians uh, might have something to do with the fact that there may be some deniability. Maybe it was a Russian partisan uh, activity. Uh, Yes, well, uh, there seems to be uh, some indication going back quite some time that um, the U.S. had some concerns about Ukrainian strikes uh, into Russia, Um, not so much generally, but against specific targets that may cause uh, severe escalations. And I think, uh, for instance, the intelligence head you just spoke of, he uh, gave an interview after the Engels airbase bombing uh, drone attack, and he said that these attacks will take place deeper and deeper into Russia. So I believe uh, Ukraine is probably the most likely uh, suspect. However, uh, perhaps they don't want to um, anger the Americans uh, too much and have that wrath kind of drawn down upon them. Right. There has been a lot of pressure from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, on the Ukrainians to try and restrain them. And they've been chafing at the bit. You know, it's, it's obviously asymmetrical. The Russians are free to destroy their country and try to destroy their infrastructure and kill their civilians, whereas the Ukrainians are restrained by the Americans largely from striking back. Um, so it's obviously quite frustrating for them. But Lucas Weber, let's talk about the possibility of local Russian resistance movements, partisan movements being involved here. The former Russian lawmaker Ilya Ponomarev, who is tied in with some of these partisan movements, apparently, he's claiming that they were involved, that they did it. In other words, local Russians, and it may explain, you know, why they were able to, you know, launch drones closer to the Kremlin. Uh, Yes, well, the uh, National Republican Army also claimed the uh, Daria uh, Dugina bombing as well as the uh, attack last month that uh, killed the the prominent Russian military blogger. So um, it's hard to tell how much uh, credence to put behind these claims. Uh, But there is a possibility, for instance, that uh, it could be one of these uh, Russian groups that are fighting on behalf of the Ukrainians that may have uh, crossed the border to gather targeting information and gauge uh, air defense gaps. Or it could be uh, perhaps domestic partisan groups. For instance, there is um, BOAK, which is an anarchist communist uh, movement. And this they, have, um, they started out uh, early in the war with um, fairly simple tactics on sophisticated explosives. And what they were doing is they were bombing railways to disrupt military logistics. We also saw uh, rail partisans in Belarus as well. And um, they have the BOAK has also, um, they're a learning organization. So uh, as we monitor them online, we can see that they are sharing bomb-making manuals, and they're looking at uh, guerrilla and technical manuals from uh, historical organizations or international militaries to see how they can improve their tactics and come up with uh, ways to construct more uh, potent uh, explosive devices. So it is possible that this uh, group or some like it 
could have been behind the attack. However, I think that uh, is most likely the Ukrainians as uh, as if we look at the context, this is taking place while these drone attacks are really proliferating all across uh, Russia's borders and in Russian-occupied territories. But I wouldn't count out local partisans. Right. And there is, of course, the pro-Ukraine Russian Volunteer Corps, and there's the Russian Imperial Movement, which is a right-wing movement, right? Mm. Yeah, well, the Russian Imperial Movement and their militant wing, the Russian Imperial Legion, uh, though they are skeptical of the Kremlin, they're actually recruiting uh, Russians and uh, other fighters, uh, foreign fighters, to uh, join their militia in Ukraine. So for the moment, they are on Russia's side when it comes to this war. So is there then going back to Badanov? I mean... My understanding is that he's he's got a certain amount of of independence. He's certainly the the most capable and the least tainted of the Ukrainian military leaders. Reznikov, the defense minister, is somewhat suspect, and certainly there's been charges of corruption. And Yermak, who's the head of the president's office, is also considered to be fairly pro-Russian, which is pretty bizarre given that he's right there next to Zelensky. So what's your understanding about the command structure there and whether Badanov is an independent actor and doesn't necessarily trust some of the other high-ranking f- officials, particularly Yomak, who may well have Russian sympathies? Uh, well, he seems like a, uh, a bit of a... He's a, he, he's a patriot and um, he's strong-willed and he... Uh, it, it seems to me that... It, it, nationalistically he would like to do what is in ukraine's uh what he believes is in ukraine's uh best interest and though obviously they welcome support from the americans and the west and uh, other countries that um, are aligned with them uh, they will ultimately do uh, what they think is best for their country and if they are indeed behind um, the drone attack on the kremlin i, I believe uh, they felt that it was worth it, even if it um, drew the ire of the Americans to some extent. Because, for instance, if we looked at the uh, Dugina assassination, uh, U.S. officials uh, spoke to the New York Times and they uh, expressed their displeasure with this um, operation and uh, suggested it was the Ukrainians. Um, but ultimately, Ukraine is fighting a war of survival, so um, they will take to extreme measures if they feel it is best, regardless of what the Americans or the West thinks to an extent. So what's the organization then that Ilya Ponomarev, the former Russian lawmaker, is connected to? I believe it's the National Republican Army. There are some questions as to... Uh, their legitimacy, whether they're just a kind of psyop or propaganda organization. And um, it's unclear, really, if they have the uh, militant capacity to carry out the attacks they claim, whereas other Russian groups, for instance, um, we can see that they actually have a military presence uh, who are fighting alongside the Ukrainians, uh, like the Russian Volunteer Corps, they have a military presence. They've recorded themselves making uh, cross-border incursions into Bryansk and actually uh, sieging a couple of settlements or at least attacking Russian security personnel. So uh, Russian Volunteer Corps are, are more proven, uh, or at least it's more observable, and there's more evidence that they have some kind of uh, military infrastructure that allows them to conduct these operations, whereas the National Republican Army, um, they're, they're, they're less proven when it comes to evidence at this moment. But, right. Well, all of this is talk, and I tried to explore it yesterday and found it difficult to figure out, but now there's a little more clarity today. Less and less I'm inclined to believe that it was a, a staged attack 
simply because I'd, it's humiliating, surely. I mean, on the one hand, you can argue that Putin did it in order to rile up the Russian people and get them to volunteer because he's having a hard time filling the ranks because they're essentially cannon fodder. That's a possibility. But on the other hand, you've got the humiliation of striking at his residence within the Kremlin itself. There's nothing more graphic than that. Just ahead of the May 9th Victory Day Parade, where he's got to stand out in the public there in Red Square. So where do you come down again? I know I asked you this earlier, but I'd just like a little more clarification about trying to sort of analyse this idea of why would they do a false flag? Because a false flag is like the operation that took place back in 1999 when Putin blew up a bunch of apartment buildings and killed 300 of his own citizens in order to get become president and then prosecute the Second Chechen War. We know they're perfectly capable of, of that, but if you did a false flag operation inside Russia against your own people, you'd blow up an orphanage full of children and blame it on the Ukrainians. You wouldn't send a drone to blow up Putin's house inside the Kremlin. Yes, well, uh, there, the false flag uh, theories have been thrown around since even before the invasion. Uh, I remember reading uh, analysts saying uh, while Russian forces were amassing along Ukraine's border, uh, analysts were uh, suggesting Russia was going to try to pull off a fl- false flag to as pretext to invade um, and we've seen, uh, for instance, uh, anticipation of chemical weapons uh, or even radiological false flags to justify some kind of escalation, uh, just as we're seeing uh, now. But I think the simple fact is that uh, Russia, if if they want to do something, they're just going to go ahead and, and do it. And I, I believe a lot of people are uh, overthinking this or perhaps... Um, uh, uh, supporters of Ukraine may understandably n- not want to believe that Z- Zelensky is perhaps um, uh, lying about not um, being behind the attack, which, uh, if it's expedient, he, uh, he's he's the head of a, a country that's being invaded and is fighting for survival. So sometimes tactically you you have to lie or and um, with an operation like this where, Perhaps the Americans will be angry with him and his uh, staff. Uh, he, he may be trying to uh, create some ambiguity or plausible deniability. So just in closing then, uh, Lucas Weber, are you concerned or do you expect any kind of, I mean, there'll obviously be retaliation, but one of the, I think it's valid in the, uh, the Duma head, is talking about maybe using nuclear weapons. Do you see that on the cards? Uh, they may respond by, uh, for instance, launching a a major series of airstrikes, um, which we have seen after uh, similar such incidents. Um, however, I, I believe that uh, the Russian strategy is to simply uh, grind forward. And uh, Putin... His personality is where he kind of wants to stick to a strategy and not veer away from it or become overly emotional about a certain incident, uh, which is something he's often criticized for by even the more hawkish figures inside Russia. So uh, we will have to wait and see, but uh, it could uh, come in the form of intense airstrikes or perhaps even a strike on a uh, leadership figure or center. Uh, we will see because this this was, although it was fairly minor as it just hit some kind of pole over the top of the Kremlin causing little damage in a fire, it is a big uh, symbolic operation and, and it, it is very embarrassing and Putin will have a lot of pressure on him as we see by these public statements and you can be sure it's happening behind the scenes. Uh, to escalate, but uh, we will have to wait and see, essentially. So just to clarify what you just said, though, uh, Lucas, did one of the drones hit a flagpole and explode? It wasn't necessarily shot down? Well, Russia claims they shot down two, but video did come out and it showed at least one. I saw some 
um, OSINT analysts suggesting maybe there were videos of two. However, I only saw one. Um, so something did, in fact, hit it. I'm not sure about the credibility of Russia saying they shot two down, um, given the video evidence that one did strike the Kremlin, or at least a pole on top of it. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Lucas Weber. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Lucas Weber, who's a researcher focused on geopolitics, great power politics, and transnational militant movements. He's the co-founder and editor of Militant Wire and contributes to Eurasia Net, Jamestown Foundation, and The Diplomat. And he has an article at Unheard, Kremlin Drone Attack Shows Russian Vulnerability. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into why the U.S. has been slow in helping Ukraine defend itself with weapons that are eventually delivered months, if not a year late, as the Biden administration creates its own red lines. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dov Sackheim, who's a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and vice chairman of the board for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2001 to April of 2004, he was Under Secretary of Defense and Chief Financial Officer for the Department of Defense. His latest article at The Hill is How a Successful Ukrainian Spring Offensive Could Lead to Putin's Downfall and Yevgeny Prigozhin's Elevation to President. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dov. Thank you for having me. So, Dov, you're basically saying out of the frying pan into the fire that there's worse people waiting in the wings than Vladimir Putin? May well be. Um, It's one thing to say he goes. It's another thing to say who replaces him. And Prigozhin is is uh, no angel, to put it mildly, you know, much closer to the devil, actually. Um, but it's not at all clear just when this might happen. Um, obviously, uh, the Russians are saying that we, the United States, uh, together with the Ukrainians, were behind this drone attack. Um, who knows? I mean, after all said and done, the Nazis were behind the burning of the Reichstag and blamed it on other people. I think the communists, if I recall. So it just may have been a stunt. But there's no doubt that uh, if this war really turns badly for the Russians, it's already bad for the Russians. But if this uh, successful counteroffensive, that puts uh, Putin in a very, very difficult corner. But is that to say, then, that there is pressure on Zelensky from American authorities and I don't know about the Pentagon, which you know well, or the White House itself. Does the U.S. side want to restrain Zelensky and the Ukrainians in their counteroffensive so that they don't humiliate Putin? Well, um, there's a theory amongst many who suspect the United States of all kinds of terrible things of basically trying to prolong this war until it gets negotiated and uh, Zelensky gives up territory. What's clear is, uh, are two things, frankly. The first is we've been very, very open and, and privately as well in making it clear to Kiev that uh, we do not want them using our materiel to strike Russian territory. I mean, very, very clear about that. Uh, the second is that we have been... Uh, I think, far too slow in supplying him with what he needs. The irony, of course, is that had we provided the HIMARS, the Patriots, um, the various systems that we've sent across to him, but done that, say, a year ago, May of last year or April of last year, maybe this war wouldn't be on anymore. Uh, The tanks are another great example of that. Uh, And so we've been terribly slow, which I think in part has led people to suspect us of wanting to let him go only so far but no further. I don't think that's true. I think there are all kinds of other reasons why we we are slow. Um, 
but we certainly do not want him attacking Russian territory, uh, partly because, uh, as you just saw with this drone attack, they're going to blame us. And if it's clear that we're behind an attack, uh, who knows where that leads. So are you aware of these rumors that suggest that the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has been putting the brakes on the Ukrainians from the beginning? And that may explain why stuff has dribbled in slowly. I think your point is well taken that had all of this equipment arrived a year ago, we'd be looking at a very different situation today. Well, I've been in government long enough to know that when there are rumors about an individual, you never know whether it's because they really are true or because people want to nail something on that individual. Um, Jake Sullivan is uh, relatively young. Um, There are a lot of other people perhaps who thought they should be national security advisors. And so who knows whether he's really the guy behind it. Uh, There's no question that the White House has been slow But there are many people working in the White House, many people talking to Mr. Biden. And as we saw in Afghanistan, the president, for people say he's old and this and that, seems to have had a mind of his own on Afghanistan, and he may well have a mind of his own here, too. But is there any credence, then, uh, to complaints that you want hearing from Ukraine that a lot of the equipment is coming slowly, not of it, some of it's recycled, not up to snuff? Is there? Have you heard anything to that effect? Well, there have been lots of complaints, um, but you got to remember from the Ukrainian point of view, um, they have to keep complaining. Um, they want uh, everything that's newest, fastest, uh, and so that's not surprising. Um, there haven't been all that many reports about malfunctions on, on the part of uh, our systems, uh, which leads me to wonder whether we really have been transferring second-rate uh, or even second-hand stuff. Um, but, you know, if I were in Kiev, I'd probably do the same thing, try to get to push the United States as far as I can push, try to get as much as I can, and not only that, try to get the newest possible stuff. So I'm still a tiny bit puzzled as to why there's been this foot dragging. Uh, you're suggesting that there's no lack of will on the part of the United States to help oh. Ukraine. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> There is no lack of will, but on the other hand, there's a lot of self-deterrence. I think that um, there's there's been a concern ever since Putin started talking about using nuclear weapons that remains in the back of people's minds. Uh, you've got to remember that the Pentagon is actually a very, very conservative institution, uh, and they worst-case things. That's the nature of the business. And so when you get the uh, leader of of a major superpower... Uh, with strategic nuclear weapons, starting to talk the way no one has talked since probably Khrushchev saying he would bury us, uh, that gets people nervous and that gets them thinking, uh, well, we better test things out, but do it very, very slowly. And if you look at how we've actually shipped stuff, very often it's been the British or other Europeans that have been, um, that been ahead of us. And once it looks like they got away with whatever they got away with, we come in. And even in this business with the tanks, where we were playing Alphonse and Gaston with the Germans, why did we need to do that at all with the Germans? I think in part it was, again, because of this lingering fear that um, Putin might make good on his threats, even though the probability with each time we've tested him and he hasn't done it uh, does decline. Nevertheless, one can understand in a certain way, frankly, for my part, I would ignore them entirely, but one can understand um, in a certain way that there's still some degree of concern about that. But we have been essentially setting our own red lines, right? And, That's and absolutely correct. We've been, we've been drawing our own red lines and then erasing them and drawing new ones, Yes. I mean, for instance, the latest red line is clearly with uh, combat aircraft, which is something that Zelensky's been pressing for for months. Right, and and he's got the aircraft, but they need to upgrade the avionics and weapon systems, right? That's correct. That's correct. And and why don't we do that, do you think? Same reason. I believe it'll happen, but just... Uh, it'll happen the way the tanks happened and the Bradleys happened and the HIMARS happened and the Patriots happened. But meanwhile, lots of Ukrainians die and Russia's got three times the population. 
So there's an well, asymmetry the, there, right? You're, you're preaching to the choir. I, you know, I, I certainly think they can speed it up. Um, on the one hand, we have far outpaced anybody else in terms of what we've sent. Um, I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars. We're talking about doing this in the face of uh, growing congressional concern about this. Um, so, you know, Biden's doing a lot. And speak to Europeans, and they'll tell you that. I just came back from Europe last night. Uh, but on the other hand, the question is, could we do more? I, be- I personally believe we could. Uh, it's not just Zelensky who believes we could. Um, but again, as I say, there's, there is that lingering concern uh, and, you know, if you're in the White House, then you're making decisions that affect that could affect millions of lives and not just Ukrainians. Right. But I think that in terms of nuclear saber rattling from Putin, I think he's cried wolf too often, hasn't he? I mean, obviously. I, uh, yes, I, I think he has. The question is, you know, uh, but, you know, the story of the boy who cried wolf. Right. At the end of the day, the wolf showed up. Sure. And and no one believed the boy because he cried it so often, and I think that's what worries the you know some of the military people in the Pentagon that uh, you simply cannot ignore it entirely. And so, I think that's part of the reluctance. Um, on the other hand, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin has made it clear that uh, he supports the counteroffensive. So you know, uh, there's a this is I guess what ambivalence is all about. Right. We provide them with support. Where it's not a conspiracy to, you know, tie the Ukrainians down and force them to negotiate. Because, quite frankly, if we wanted to do that, we could have done that six months ago. But what happens then if this offensive, uh, counteroffensive, surpasses even the expectations of the U.S.? There's even some rumors recently su- suggesting that U.S. I guess Pentagon authorities think that maybe. It's not going to be as powerful and as effective as the Ukrainians would hope. We know that the Russians have been de- building defenses. But on the other yes. hand, this whole hideous war has shown us what a paper tiger and how corrupt the Russian military is. So it's not inconceivable, uh, Dovsakheim, that an offensive that punches a big hole, particularly in the south, they could end up taking Crimea. The Russians could collapse, right? And then what happens then with Putin if he's thoroughly humiliated? Well, that's my point. I, th- I think you cannot just as uh, you know, just as you, the military may have to consider the, the minor, the, the tiny percentage probability that Putin could go to a nuclear weapon, and I believe that probability declines every single day. Uh, there is the probability that some percentage probability that the Ukrainians could break through and take Crimea. Um, and the fact that the Russians are digging in the way they are, and we know they're digging in tells me that they really are worried. And, you know, you put these raw raw recruits in there or foreign troops or, you know, this mishmash of people they've got in there. And then if the Ukrainians start to break through, I don't think they'll, these people are going to stick around in their trenches to see if if they'll survive or not. I think they're going to run for their lives. So it could well be that uh, the Ukrainians take Crimea. Uh, And if they take Crimea, uh, I think Mr. Uh, Mr. Putin's got a big problem, and he may well find whether it's Prigozhin or generals or someone else telling him, uh, Vladimir, my friend, you have a choice. You can either move back to your dacha and on the Black Sea and live out your life and all your riches, or um, we'll make you go. And there's another character, of course, Patrushev, uh, who's national security advisor, who's also a far-right nationalist. So. In oh, yeah. that scenario, Dov, there's nobody that's sort of reasonable in the wings. There's no well, possibility. The, the, all, all the good people have left, haven't they? The, the good guys are either gone, dead, or in jail. No question. Um, but then again, you just don't know. I mean, who would have thought Yeltsin would do what he did, standing on a tank and, and all that sort of thing? Um, we don't know. The, the thing that we... that we always do mistakenly, myself, all of us, we straight line everything. We take where we are today and just straight line it and assume it'll be the same way tomorrow. But guess what? Straight lining would never have told us that Ukraine would be invaded. Even though Georgia had been invaded and Moldova was, you know, parts of Moldova have been swallowed by the Russians and 
and so on, um, who straight, you know, who would have thought Ukraine? Because Ukraine wasn't a straight line from there. And so we just, you know, who would have thought the Berlin Wall would have fallen when it did? So we just don't know. But on the face of it, it, it's very true that anybody who would show a very different face to the West is dead, exiled, or in jail. So just in the last few minutes then, is there a compromise here? Is there, there's no indication that Putin is interested in a deal, right? Well, that, that's not entirely true. Apparently, he has been talking, for instance, to Lula uh, of Brazil. I mean, they're, they're, Putin clearly has to be the person to make the first move. He's the one who invaded Ukraine. He's the one who has to reach out and say, okay, I'm ready to talk. And he has potential interlocutors. There's Modi of India. Probably the best one is Orban of Hungary, who's close to him and yet a member of NATO. Erdogan, if he wins the election, is another possibility. I mean, there are people out there, countries out there, um, to whom Putin could reach out if he wished. Now, I don't think he will unless this war in uh, Ukraine starts to really go badly for him. He may want to do that before the Ukrainians take Crimea, when it looks like they might take Crimea. So it's possible he'll reach out. But uh, I don't see Zelensky doing it first. Well, we've been told, though, just in the last minute here, that Putin is paranoid about being deposed. And he apparently was freaked out by what happened to Gaddafi when he was grabbed by a mob. And certainly, if this strike on the Kremlin either came from pro-Ukrainian Russian partisans or from Budanov's people in Ukraine... They're really rattling his cage, aren't they? Well, of course they are. And and do you honestly think he became paranoid yesterday? Right, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, but he's been paranoid for a long, long time. Uh, you know, uh, a president of a country, of uh, a Western European country whom I know, um, was uh, would meet with, met with Putin in his office. And Putin's got all these machines because he's wor- boring in his office that are absorbing the air because he's purifying the air because he's worried about germs. Of course, this guy's paranoid. I mean, after all said and done, when you behave the way Putin does, don't you expect to have enemies? Well, that's true. He's a, he's a thug and a mafia boss, so exactly. uh, he's and, always and you looking over his shoulder. That's right. And if you saw any one of the Godfather movies, you know that mafia bosses don't tend to have uh, long lives. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Dosakam. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dov Sakam, who is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic International Studies and the vice chairman of the board of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2001 to April of 2004, he was Under Secretary of Defense and Chief Financial Officer for the Department of Defense. And his latest article at The Hill is How a Successful Ukrainian Spring Counteroffensive Could Lead to Putin's Downfall and Yevgeny Prigozhin's Elevation to President. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
One more light goes out in the middle. 